0: Punk Rock HR is sponsored by BetterWorks. The world's most dynamic organizations rely on BetterWorks to accelerate growth by supporting transparent goal setting, enabling continuous performance, and learning from employee insights. BetterWorks is on a mission to help HR leaders make work better. Discover how they can help you by visiting BetterWorks.com today. Hey everybody, I'm Laurie Rudiman. Welcome back to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is David Glasgow. He's the executive director at the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging at NYU School of Law. He's also the co-author of the new book, Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity, and Justice. And David is on the show doing that today. We're talking about identity, diversity, justice, and also how to make sure you come to these conversations in your workplace with the right attitude, the right spirit, and how to recover when they don't necessarily go the right way. So if you're interested in learning about some of the most common mistakes that people make in conversations around identity and how to decenter yourself and actually approach this in the spirit of relationship and moving the world of work and the world in general forward, we'll sit back and enjoy this conversation with David Glasgow on this week's Punk Rock HR. Hey, David, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Sure, it's my pleasure. Listen, I'm so excited to talk about who you are, what you're all about and your new books. So why don't you briefly introduce us to everything that is David Glasgow.
1: Sure. So uh, my name is David Glasgow. I'm originally from Australia and trained as a lawyer. And then I moved over into this field of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and now work with my co-author and colleague Kenji Yoshino at the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging at NYU School of Law. And so we work with a lot of organizations and also with people within the law school on advancing inclusion and inclusive cultures. And that led us to write this new new book Say the Right Thing.
0: So tell us a little bit about your book. What's it all about? Who's it for?
1: So this book is really for anyone who's terrified of saying the wrong thing in conversations about issues of identity and diversity. So if you think about really the full spectrum of conversations about race, gender, LGBTQ issues, disability, any of the identity issues that we're all struggling with and grappling with right now, this book is for people who want to show up as good allies, want to participate in efforts to advance inclusion, but find themselves often withdrawing from those efforts because they fear getting it wrong. And we saw this happening so much in our work that we felt like we needed to write a practical guide for people so that they could overcome their fears and learn how to say the right thing in these conversations.
0: So why do you think we're finding it harder and harder to have these conversations? Because the time is right to have these conversations. And yet to your earlier point, there's tension. People with good intentions are scared and we actually need them leaning in now more than ever. So why is it so difficult?
1: I think there's a few reasons so one is that these conversations are just becoming a lot more ubiquitous everywhere you turn so there's no escape from them anymore I think a lot of people felt in the past like if you wanted to avoid having these conversations you could whereas now in workplaces people are talking much more about issues of bias and of diversity inside organizations in schools universities even as young as preschool now some people are getting lessons on diversity and inclusion issues and getting exposed more and more to diversity issues. And then of course, in the media, you can't really open a homepage of a newspaper these days without seeing discussions and debates, whether it's issues around so-called critical race theory or LGBTQ rights or any issues of gender equity. They're all splashed all over the newspapers, which means we're all talking about them around the water cooler or at family barbecues, really everywhere we turn. So the inescapability of it is one point. And I think another huge challenge Challenge is generational. So a lot of younger people who are entering workplaces, we spoke with a corporate leader when we wrote this book who said, you know, one of the challenges that I'm experiencing is that a lot of people from Generation Z are coming into my workplace and they're saying, you know, let's have forums about the white supremacy in this organization. And a lot of the older people in the organization react to that and are like, what on earth are you talking about? Because they think of that as being a really extreme forms of racism. And so I think, that generational divide is creating challenges now as well because we have five generations all working together in the same workplaces for the first time. And so there's a lot of friction. I think that that generates,
0: you know, it's interesting that you brought up the different generational tensions that we face because one of the things that I'm so struck by is that while Generation Z is coming into the workforce and wants to have these conversations that feel provocative. This is also a generation that doesn't know how to work together because they have not worked in a physical work location for the most part for most of their career. So talk to me about the role of the pandemic in creating fraught conversations and adding to the level of tension.
1: It's a great question because we actually came up with the idea for this book and started writing it only a few months into the pandemic when all of the protests around Black Lives Matter and all the social activism really hit a peak. And I think that those things are related to each other, right? I think the time was ripe for those big protest movements, but I also felt like people had time. Not everyone. I'm a parent of young children. I had less time than ever during the pandemic, but I think a lot of people did have time to really take a step back and reflect reflect on, you know, what's important in life, how we ought to be living as a society, what had been going wrong for a long time. And so I think the pandemic really made people pay attention to these extremely difficult topics of identity, diversity, and justice. Sometimes for the first time, a lot of allies flooded into movements that really had never participated in a lot of these conversations before. And so I think that's created an issue. I think also just the mode in which we speak to each other has changed because a lot of people became chronically online. certainly did. And we even considered in the book writing a chapter on how to have these conversations on social media. And we ultimately abandoned the chapter because we just sort of gave up and said, oh, these conversations are awful on social media. I don't know how to fix them. (laughs) And our encouragement is really, if you're going to have a conversation about something really heavy like this, maybe get off the platforms that encourage clicks and dunking and actually have that nuanced face-to-face conversation. And so I think that's created a challenge from the pandemic as as well, is that we're engaging with each other in conversation in a different kind of format, some of which are not especially healthy or productive for these kinds of conversations.
0: Well, that makes sense. I wonder if you could share with us some of the common mistakes that people make in conversations around identity. What are some
1: examples? So we divide the common mistakes into four categories, which we call avoid, deflect, deny, and attack. So we shorten that to ADDA. So avoid is what it sounds like, which is, you know, I run away. I literally leave the room or I go silent, I look at my phone or I don't really share what I think. Deflect is where I change the subject of conversation. So you bring up some issue of identity with me and instead of engaging with you on that topic, I make it about your tone. So I might say something like, well, you know, Laura, you you have a good point, but I don't appreciate the way that you put it just now. Or I make it about my good intentions or my good moral character. So I say, well, you know, I didn't mean it that way. Or or I grew up in a diverse neighborhood, or I'm in an interracial marriage. And so it then becomes all about me rather than about the issue that you raised with me. Deny is where I just put up a wall and I reflexively oppose whatever it is that you tell me. So I just say you're wrong. No questions asked. We differentiate that from disagreement because obviously it is okay to have legitimate, respectful disagreements, but denial is where I just shut you down and say that you're wrong. And then attack is where I make it personal. So I might in insult you or use sarcasm or eye rolling or, you know, that kind of behavior to really shut you down in that way. And so those we see as sort of the four most common conversational traps. And part of the reason why we devote a whole chapter to that topic is that we hope that readers will see themselves in those um, examples and sort of identify areas where maybe they are prone to engaging in these mistakes. And I certainly count myself in that as well. I'm an avoidance guy, but I think a lot of people might, find themselves in some of these four categories.
0: You know, I'm struck by that because I, at different points in my life, as an ally, as someone who cares about this, have used sarcasm or have deflected or have avoided, depending on where I was in my personal journey. I mean, I resonate with all four of those. And I just wonder if you can share some stories from the book or if you have stories that people have just shared with you after reading the book where they get super vulnerable and they're like, holy crap, I now see myself a little bit differently.
1: Sure. And so, you know, a personal example for me is when we talk about in the book a conversation that I had with a group of high powered professionals of color and I was the only you know white person in this conversation and also the youngest person in the conversation but they had come to me and to my colleague to talk about how they should approach an upcoming meeting with senior colleagues in their profession to advance diversity and inclusion and they wanted my advice on how they should approach the conversation and I remember saying to them something along the lines of oh well you know, those leaders are happy to talk with you because you're nice. And I thought I was just saying something, it was kind of an off the cuff comment, but immediately in the room, they cringed and one of them said to me, you know, David, we're respected in our industry because we are really accomplished and we've achieved a lot and we you know, we're respected for our talents and abilities. We're not respected because we're nice. And I immediately sort of felt incredible guilt. I also felt a bit of self-pity because I thought, oh, they're misinterpreting me. I didn't mean it like that. Of course they're, they're highly accomplished. But as I said, it really went into a guilty kind of feeling because I immediately saw what I had said, which is it came across as, you know, here's this young white guy telling a bunch of older people of color that they've got a nice tone and that's why people like them. And so I ended up kind of wallowing in a lot of that guilt. And I think this sort of illustrates a lot of what's so difficult about these conversations, because it is a kind of form of deflection that I'm sort of paying much more attention to my own feelings and licking my own wounds than I am in engaging in the actual conversation with these individuals. But it just goes to show, I think how deeply uncomfortable these conversations can be for people who are trying to show up and do the right thing and say the right thing, because I then felt like I had been a, a terrible ally and I had let people down.
0: So, that leads me to, I think, the broader question of what is one supposed to do? Well, and that's a a question of privilege, right? And a question that only certain people can have the right to ask, right? But there are so many individuals who have said to me along the journey, I'm afraid to say anything or I'm afraid to say the wrong thing because I don't want to get canceled, which is like the most annoying thing to hear. But I also want to validate that as well, right? Yeah. Okay. I hear you, but I don't have a real good response to that. So, what do you tell people when they start to go down? that? self-indulgent rabbit hole of cancel culture.
1: We have a chapter in the book about resilience, where we talk about the importance of really grounding yourself emotionally for these conversations, because we think that's just such a foundational skill of kind of recognizing the fear that you're experiencing and then processing that fear in a mature and helpful kind of a way. So just to highlight a couple of strategies that we talk about there, one is that we borrow from the social psychologist Dolly Chug, who has written about a fixed mindset and a growth Growth mindset and how they show up in these conversations. So I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the basic distinction from the psychologist Carol Dweck's work between a fixed mindset where you think that your talents and abilities are innate and if you're not good at something, you know, you probably will never be good at it versus a growth mindset where you apply effort and realize that you can learn and get better at something with practice. Now, Dolly Chug points out that in this arena of conversations about identity, we tend to get stuck in a fixed mindset because the consequences of failure seem so great. I mean, if I make a mistake when I'm playing the piano, I don't think that makes me a terrible person. I just think I need to practice and do better next time. If I make a mistake in this arena, as you say, I'm going to think, oh my goodness, I'm going to get canceled or I'm going to hurt someone I care about. But either way, it's going to be catastrophic. I've become a racist or a sexist or a homophobe or whatever it is. And so we point out and Dolly Chug points out, it's really critical to pause and try to apply that same same growth mindset that you would apply to other areas of your life to this one. So if you find yourself engaging in self-talk, like I'm just not good at pronouns, which a lot of people say, you would add the word yet to that and say, you know, I'm not good at pronouns yet, but if I practice them, I can get better over time, right? So that's kind of triggering your mind to kind of engage in more of that growth mindset oriented way. And then another kind of strategy that we talk about is naming and reframing your emotions. So oftentimes in these conversations we feel incredibly uncomfortable but it arrives as a kind of nameless dread whereas if we pause and identify what emotion we're experiencing and the four most common ones we talk about are fear anger, guilt, and hopelessness. If you actually pause and say, you know what, I think I'm feeling fear right now. You can then reframe that emotional experience and ask yourself, is there a more productive way of thinking about this so that I'm not wallowing in my own fear? So if you find yourself saying, you know, I've got an opinion, but if I share it, everyone's going to cancel me. That's a very fear-based response. Try to reframe that into something like people might criticize me for this, but I'll share my views respectfully and I can handle." all the criticism. You know, that's a much more, I think, productive, less fear-based way of engaging in the conversation.
0: I also think there's a real lack of vulnerability around the fact that people will make mistakes and people may say the wrong things. And so one of the struggles that I know many in corporate America have had is a real misunderstanding of how to apologize and take ownership and actually move forward. So do you have any recommendations on in the moment, how to apologize, how to take ownership and how to move forward?
1: Absolutely. So we think that apologies contain four elements of recognition responsibility remorse and redress so the four r's of an apology and i think if you keep those four r's in your head when you're crafting an apology you're well on your way so recognition is about recognizing the harm so a lot of times people uh, fail at this element by using the word if so they will say i'm sorry if i offended you i'm sorry if you're upset i'm sorry if you Take it that way. And what those formulations all do is make it seem like the harm is uncertain, that you didn't actually really do anything wrong. It might just be the problem is that the other person's reaction to what you said. So try to avoid those formulations. Responsibility is taking personal responsibility for causing the harm. So here, a lot of people make the mistake of using the word, but. So people might say, I'm sorry, but I was stressed. I'm sorry, but I didn't mean it. I'm sorry, but I'm not a racist. And in all of those examples, you're acknowledging the harm that you caused, but you're trying to distance yourself from it by suggesting that you're not personally responsible for it. So famously, of course, the comedian Roseanne Barr, when she wrote a racist tweet, her defense the next day was, you know, I'm sorry, but it was two in the morning and I was ambient tweeting. And that's a good example of a but apology because it was sort of, well, yeah, I'm sorry for what I did, but also the medication made me post this, you know, online. So that's an extreme example, but I think all of us engage in those kind of half apologies from time to time. Then there's remorse, which is just expressing sincere contrition for what you did. A sort of terrible example of someone failing at that was the celebrity chef Mario Batali, who wrote an apology for sexual harassment. And then at the bottom of the apology, he said, PS, if you want a recipe for pizza dough cinnamon rolls, here's a nice recipe. And so of course that calls into question the sincerity of the apology when you're adding a cinnamon roll recipe to your apology. And So there's no form of words that communicates remorse exactly, but it's really a sort of all things considered. Are you sincerely communicating your regret for what you did? And then finally redress, and this is backing up your apology with action. So you know, a lot of the reason why people don't like apologies is because they are kind of all talk and no action. And so redress is really important to show the other person by taking tangible steps to repair the harm. And so if you've said sorry to someone, it's a commitment to to engage in best efforts to not do that again, right? Maybe even check in with the other person later, you know, how am I doing on that? Uh, To make sure that you recognize that the apology does not end the conversation. The apology really begins the process of longer term repair.
0: You know, I love all of those examples on how to really formulate a better relationship with the person that you have harmed. And I think that's what we're talking about, right? But so often people get caught up in this idea, maybe because of social media, that one mistake is career ending. And from my experience, Louis CK didn't make one mistake. He made a series of mistakes, a lifetime of mistakes, didn't demonstrate any of those skills that you just mentioned in his apologies, and then went on to double down on that behavior. And I just think so many times, many of us conflate our own experiences with that of a crazy celebrity. And it's the social media that gets in the way of the true understanding of the relationship. I don't know, what do you think about that?
1: Yes. I mean so I agree that social media is a kind of particularly difficult environment for having these conversations and I think people forget sometimes that a lot of real life conversations are very different from what's going on in social media. So, you know, for example, just within the law school where I work at NYU, if you look only at what's covered on social media, you would think, "Oh my goodness, this is going to be a hotbed of everyone, you know, canceling each other and screaming at each other and what have you." Whereas actually if you talk to our students, they're wonderful. They're extremely thoughtful. They're able to have nuanced conversations, bring different ideas to the table. And it's always just such a joy to engage with our students in these conversations. And so I think again, social media can tend to bring out a particularly toxic form of communication in most of us. Some of us can rise above it, but I certainly find it very difficult to engage productively in social media conversations. And so I do think it underscores the importance of having these conversations with people face to face and not anchoring so much on the fact that there's you know, a mob of people attacking someone online because it's unlikely in your day-to-day life if you're having a conversation around a conference room table with your colleagues that 20,000 people are all gonna mob you and attack you and drive you out of the organization. More likely if you handle it well, if you kind of handle it with sensitivity and respect and appropriately in the way that we talk about in the book, you should be able to have a productive conversation and way forward.
0: You know, that's a lovely way though that you described the law school where you were where people engage with one another they care about one another they generally show one another respect there is such a conversation happening that's probably not grounded in reality about what it's like to be on campus these days so what is it like I mean you touched on it but can you talk a little bit more about whether or not people are really as angry as they seem on the news
1: it's one of those situations where it can be hard to get a pulse of the median person because as usual right in the media the media likes to highlight conflict and they like to highlight extreme positions and so I think in any environment and certainly on campus you are going to get student activists from different sort of ends of the political spectrum who do like to kind of stoke controversy and create sort of the kinds of drama that the media tends to sort of fixate on and some of that I have to say say is good. I mean, I don't like the idea that a lot of the sort of more extreme forms of activism should be you know, squashed. And this is a terrible thing because that's how social progress often happens is that people speak out about injustice in a way that is confrontational and makes people feel uncomfortable. And so I welcome a lot of that. But I will say that, you know, the average student in my experience is exactly how I described before, which is despite the media headlines, the average student comes to, a law school like NYU really eager to to learn and to expand their own mind and to engage in conversation with professors and with each other around complex issues. And so that's something that I really value about working for NYU is being surrounded by so many thoughtful people.
0: That's lovely to hear. As we start to wrap up the conversation, I've been thinking about what these conversations look like when they go right and the potential of change to happen in our world when we nail these conversations, when they feel good, when people walk away really feeling heard and understood and they've learned something. So can you speak to that a little bit? What is the power? What is the potential and what does it look like?
1: Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, part of the reason we came to this book in the first place is that, you know, my co-author Kenji Yoshino and I, we're both gay men and we had an experience, you know, as many gay individuals do growing up where we had both the good and the bad, right? Of coming out and talking about our own identity where people reacted poorly to that and then people reacted well. And we remember every single one of those conversations, even though they happened a long time ago. And I think that speaks to the power of these conversations. Conversations is that you may think that you're just engaging in a random conversation with someone, but that other person might remember that conversation for decades to come. Like that's the impact that conversations can have on people, which is at some level terrifying because it's, oh my goodness, something I say now can, you know, impact someone for decades. But I also think it speaks to how transformative they can be because a big part of it is, does this person feel heard and respected and seen by me. You know, we have a chapter in the book about curiosity, the importance of really approaching these conversations with humility, understanding that there's a lot of things that you don't know and that the other person brings to the conversation. I think when these conversations are done well, the other person can walk away from it thinking, wow, I really felt heard in that conversation. I really felt like that other person saw what I was trying to say and recognized me for who I am. And I think that that can be incredibly life-changing for people, especially when they're coming to you in a state of vulnerability, right? Because these conversations are so vulnerable for people. There's so much fear. We've been talking a lot about the fear on the side of the person who worries that they're going to get cancelled. It's so important to remember that there's such fear on the other side of these conversations as well, where people fear that they're going to get shut down, that they're going to get ignored, that they're going to get retaliated against for opening up themselves and some vulnerable part of themselves to a person who may be more powerful Than they are, a manager, and so forth. So I think showing as a leader or even just as a colleague or friend that when someone is vulnerable and opens themselves to you, that rather than meeting that with avoid, deflect, deny, or attack behavior, you're meeting that with true openness, curiosity, listening, empathy. That can be extremely transformative, I think, in people's lives.
0: Well, thank you for reminding us of the bravery of those who come to us and raise issues, raise questions, want to talk about their identity. I mean, that is fraught with complicated possibilities. And I think those individuals more and more need to be recognized for the courageous, brave people that they are. So thank you for doing that.
1: Oh, absolutely. I 100% agree.
0: Well, David, I'm so excited for people to read your work to connect with you to just check in with your ongoing research. If people want to find more about you or the book, where should they go?
1: So the book is called Say the Right Thing So you can just type that into Google And you'll find it at any retailer And then if you want to follow our work We work at the Meltzer Center So M-E-L-T-Z-E-R So if you just type in Meltzer Center into Google You should find us and follow us online as well
0: I love that We'll make sure we share all of that in the show notes And I just want to say thanks again And please share my best with Kenji It was really great to have you as a guest today on Punk Rock HR
1: Oh well thank you so much It was a pleasure speaking with you
0: If you're interested in learning more about today's show, you can visit punkrockhr.com. There you'll find show notes, links, resources, and all the good stuff. Now that's all for today. Thanks for joining us, sharing this episode, and leaving thoughtful comments on Instagram and LinkedIn. We appreciate your support this and every week on Punk Rock HR.